What's going on, guys? Welcome to In the Zone. I'm your host, Garrison Roy. Of course, we have a bunch of different segments on this podcast. You got rants where I go and ramble on for a little bit. We got mental minutes where we focus on the mental game. We got deep dives where we're a little more educational side. But today we have a full-length interview. And if you got any other topics that you want to listen to, feel free to email those email those in. In the zone podcast one two three at gmail.com. And share the show if you get anything out of this or, you know, you find it cool, it intrigues you, takes you down a rabbit hole of your own journey, let us know. But today, our full-length interview is with Clayton Thompson of RS3. He is the co-founder there and has been training guys for quite a while. Um, We crossed paths at Tread Athletics. When was it? 2019? Yeah, back in the way back, 2019, 2020, during that COVID action. The COVID action, yeah. The, uh, I guess, throwback tread days, right? Yeah, a little bit. Back in the old the old tread facility. Yeah, for sure. That was, uh, I liked it because, you know, if we want to get down this rabbit hole of like coaching and constraints, the constraint in that place was that it was a lot smaller so then that also led to a lot more feedback and a lot more observation of multiple things going on at once versus a larger space being a little more spread out so then that feedback loop was a little shorter maybe 100 i mean i worked at tcu last summer uh with coach dakin and i mean even in big spaces like you don't really use you want guys in tight especially in a team dynamic i mean it forces them to bond and you know you want them to interact with each other and i mean like in games and stuff like that if you're trying to be more athletic and playing small-sided games you really don't want a big space anyways and so i mean i i liked it in there uh you're in tight with everybody i mean there's some inconveniences in the weight room but i mean pretty much every gym i've ever been in has had like yo can i grab that 25 pounds when you're done like it wasn't a problem i liked it in there Oh, yeah. I mean, that's just part of grit and like learning how to have relationships with people and work together and not be an asshole, basically. <laughs> but Yeah. Um, so kind of going off of this, what you just mentioned. Uh, you said you were working with Zach Dakin, which kind of gives people the premise of, hey, oh, so you want to be a strength coach like Zach Dakin, right? But we've already kind of Hinting at this before we started this recording is like, hey, pigeonholing your pigeonholing yourself as a just a strength guy is probably not the right move. Why do you think that is? Uh, you, there's no upward trajectory except maybe in like, I mean, you're a strength coach. You're like labeling. You're putting the label on yourself. And mm-hmm. I don't work that much with strength these days. I'm a speed coach in my mind. With my guys, my upper level guys, especially, it's all about speed anyways it's no longer about strength so i'm just throwing that one out there right now i don't care about strength like my my best athlete not my best athlete my longest athlete liam doolin like 
he deadlifts six, 600 pounds, not because he's strong, because he's fast. So fastest big guy that I know. And then additionally, he can produce, like, he can produce force quickly for yeah. sure. Mm-hmm. And I mean, with, I mean, Coach Dagan told me this this summer and it blew my mind. Only fast guys will be strong if you give them enough time in the weight room. Like they'll get, they'll get stronger. Like it's all about neurological speed. So sure. if you just give them time. Yeah. Yeah. Just give them time underneath a barbell and then their strength numbers will go up. Like it's literally that simple. But, uh, I work at a biomechanics lab right now, which is a lot different than strength coach. Uh, right now I'm doing some really interesting work with, uh, peak lead knee extension velocity and it's possible correlations to counter movement jump performance and, uh, fastball velocity. But, uh, really haven't seen too much with that. Uh, people just throw hard because of big lower body output numbers, not necessarily because of, uh, lower body output numbers correlating. Yeah. 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 It's just, I was, well, I was trying to figure out like what kinematics are good and like what physiological qualities make them good so like for instance like in theory uh i was looking at modified rsi so mrsi is basically just it's a formula that's derived from jump height divided by ground contact time so if you're doing counter movement jump it's just the initialization of the jump to when your feet leave the force plate so it's your jump height divided by that amount of time and so it's just so it's peak height divided by time you're on the ground and so i was looking at mrsi and then there it's correlation to peak lead knee extension velocity because i was like oh like you know it's pretty interesting no one's looked at this before i did a literature review before i was like no one's looked at it maybe you know stretch shortening cycle is so the stretch shortening cycle has big implications for mrsi because if you use the stretch shortening cycle well you'll get off the ground faster and so i was like okay maybe you know guys who spend less time on their front leg as in like less time between foot plant and ball release so they're extending their knee faster because why not um, maybe they throw harder because their MRSI values are higher and it's not, they're just, they just have bigger lower body outputs. So that's why they throw harder, not because of any correlation to peak lead knee extension velocity. Yeah. So I can kind of relate a lot to where you're at because for those listeners who don't know, I, I did a, um, a biomechanics study as well whenever I was in college and I had the full setup kind of like tried to copy the just full mocap of driveline at the time and this was in 2017 so like i had to make my own mound and put one ground reaction force plate that was movable off of the ground in this lab right so put it where the lead leg would land and i manipulated the stride length by manipulating where the the rubber was placed on that slope right so i saw you post about it on your instagram yeah 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 Yeah. so it's like you know I had this notion I was like, all right, cool. Like what matters in the pitching delivery? And I thought it was kinematics, but the more I like went into it and I was like, there's no way in hell that this is right. Because if I'm going to put a sensor here and then the next day the kid comes in or even another guy comes in, it would probably be just a little bit off. Even, even if it's just uh, like a hair, that messes and fudges with the numbers so much. 100%. So what my boss is doing right now, Aaron Trunt, super smart guy, follow him on Twitter. Um, what he's doing right now is he's using DEXA scans. So guys are getting, so basically what a DEXA scan is, it's like an x-ray, but for soft tissue, like a, like a really wide, it's not like a, it's not like a, like a CAT scan or anything like that. Or So it's just like a big x-ray for your whole body. And it determines like your bone density and your muscular density. 
And so he's, he's using that to determine, to correctly calculate arm kinematics in the pitching delivery. And so he's redoing the calculations that people have been using for a long time in biomechanics by getting like correct measurements on people that, so he's basically getting their physiological state and then putting them into the computer instead of just estimating and putting dots on people. Well, we're still putting that dots on people to get, you know, how they move, but he's able to actually like correctly calculate the values for people's arms and limb lengths scientifically instead of just guessing. So absolutely correct. And I think my boss is, he's getting his PhD in this, obviously. I love um, it. But yeah, we'll but love that's it. exactly what he's doing and why. Definitely would love to connect with him. So I guess if we want to go down this rabbit hole, I was actually recently, um, and I'm sure you've gone down with this a little bit too, uh, Rob Gray's Perception Action Podcast, where he talks a lot about variance and having a bunch of, you know, like there is no repeatable mechanics. So each time you're going to set up the sensor, there's going to be a different solution to still accomplish the goal, which is throw the ball into the mitt or maybe in this case in a lab, throw it into a net. Unfortunately, very far removed from the context of a game, but hey, it's just what you got to work with in the lab setting at times. Um, you yeah. know, unless you have the resources to do that, like out there and the West Coast of driveline was like, cool, great. But like, you know, just trying to get a little more practical application for, for the listeners. But so there's a study out there by um, Donna Moxley Scarborough. She's, I think she's with the Red Sox. Um, or like consults with them or something like that. But the title of it is kinematic sequence patterns in the overhead baseball pitch. Right. And I'll just kind of summarize this abstract. And I just want to kind of paint a picture for the audience and then claim we can kind of go down this rabbit hole a little bit more. Um, So you have uh, 208 baseball pitches collectively within 22 baseball pitchers, not a huge sample size, but Hey, we'll go with it. Right. So you got five high schoolers, 11 college, six pro, and the kinematic sequence patterns, which is like the peak angular velocity of five body segments is what they were looking at, which was the pelvis, the trunk, the arm, the forearm, and the hand. Those are the ones that they measured, right? I don't know why they picked those, uh, but they said none of the pitches uh, analyzed demonstrated an entirely proximal to distal kinematic sequence which is a huge statement in and of itself because a lot of theories out there is like, Hey, we want to be more proximal to distal. And I get that because you should get that. And, and to a certain degree, but just knows like, Hey, in real life situations, like that didn't happen. Then you have 14 different kinematic sequence patterns were demonstrated right between pelvis, trunk, arm, hand, forearm, but only 10% of those pictures only, one kinematic sequence was the same. Out of 10% of the 22 guys, there was only one similar kinematic sequence. Like in all of their pitches or to each other? To their personal pitches. Gotcha. So it it was different each time. Yep. Yeah. So, I mean... Basically saying like, hey, we don't know anything about this kinematic sequence to a degree. But so, and this, and this is where studies can kind of get, you can't draw direct conclusions from that, but it's like, all right, cool. There's a lot more variant from what I'm getting out of it. There's a lot more variance than we think. 
yeah pitch to pitch athlete to athlete whatever so like these little models are like comp models and stuff and i'll i'll be the first to admit i use them i think it, you can use them as a crutch to maybe describe a concept but don't get married to it and have a guy look at just hey you need to throw like bruce dark gratterall because you have a similar body type you're not bruce dark yeah you know um but i don't know what are your what are your thoughts on hearing that and then we can kind of take it down this little rabbit hole a little bit more yeah so i i used to be a big driveline guy trained to driveline as well um i used to be all mocap guy and then i got away from it then i kind of gotten back to it recently obviously i work at a biomechanics lab i'm not like a mocap guy like i literally work in one so where i'm at now is this concept of the minimum viable program so essentially it's like you have to start somewhere with your athletes and i think if you have access to a mocap not many people do so i mean it's not really like a super useful tool for a lot of people but if you have access to a mocap, like the information gain, like you want to be on that thing at least once or twice, especially with the the come ups that marketless systems are making in pro ball and potentially in college. I think Soon. those are huge. Yeah. Yeah. Markerless systems. Um, where it's at. Yep. Markerless systems on cameras, not on your phone. Don't do them on your phone. I'm just pitch AI. I'm sorry. It cannot. Not, it cannot. Yeah. It can't calculate rotation from a single plane video. Just so people know. I didn't know that at first. I had to learn that. I mean, y'all got to start somewhere, but pitch AI mustard. Don't believe those. Please just take a video on your camera and be like, Hey, that looks good. They do. They still do that in pro ball, even with markerless systems. So don't do that. But I think, I think mocaps are, you have to start somewhere. And so why can't I go like what driveline does right now in, what what I think driveline, let's just say what I think driveline does. I'm 99% sure they do this, but why not? Um, they they use mocap, motion capture to assign drills, which you can have opinions on that if you want. They pair that with their strength assessment, which they go, okay, this guy's either strong or weak, depending on their tests, which are, I have thoughts on those too, but that's not what we're asking about. But they, they go, this guy's strong, weak, uses stress shortening cycle well, Use a stretch shortening cycle poorly. Here's what he needs to do in the weight room. And then if he's really good in the weight room and that and he throws slow, then they go, hey, okay, it's mechanical efficiency. And then they start looking more at the mocap. And so I think it's a tool that should be used in tandem in your assessment process. It's obviously not a make or break thing. I mean, yes, intra rep variability. Oh my God. We could talk about this all day because it's i mean the mound's different every time your shoes yeah. are different everything's different like i mean that's the name of the game bernstein's hammer like yep. br- breaking stuff like but at the at the same time like i think it you have to do it if you have it available because it is like how you know what's going on i mean you don't net you'll never know but it's your it's our best guess sure and so i think it's, use the it's tool if you have that tool use it regularly and only compare that data within yourself. So very similar to like whenever I had a podcast with um, Kyle Lindley, where we were talking about the the pulse. Sure. Like, don't look at your numbers on the pulse compared to Jimmy and Timmy. Compare the numbers on the pulse 
Timmy from day one to Timmy from day four. Yeah. So the pulse is not a reliable, is not a valid measure of stress mm-hmm. at all. I mean, uh, there's it's an interesting. It's only measuring where that yep. is, not necessarily how your muscles and everything are like, you yeah. know, co-contracting or even the, right, the synergy, the muscle synergies of right, what I was just talking about, the kinematic sequence. Like, yep. are these flowing correctly versus is there a kink in the water hose, which sometimes when we look at video, I myself as a coach look at this, we can visually see those kinks or those like hitches, right? Or even like the freezing degrees of freedom, for example, like when you're looking at a torso and all of a sudden you see the torso and the arm rotate together, those are out of sequence because the peak angular velocity of those are happening at the same time versus one sequentially right after the other. Yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, that's, that's pretty much exactly what I do. I mean, first of all, it's like, I, my first question when looking at videos is always just how hard is it? And then, then I go from there. More, more but, context. Yeah. 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 I've, that I love that you brought that up because it, it matters. It don't just look at it and be like, Oh, is this aesthetically pleasing? Who gives a shit? If it's hard, it's hard. Cool. Now to add more layers to that though, <clears throat> if we're trying to improve the skill of pitching, not just the skill of throwing hard, <clears throat> then I think we need to add, you know, okay, was it a strike? Was it with the hitter in the, in the box? Right? Was what pitch was it? Was it a hard off speed or was it a hard fastball? What count was it? How many people what, were there? Yeah, sure. And then what was the intention? Yeah. Right? So I don't know about you, but whenever I was pitching in games, I wasn't throwing a 10 out of 10 fastball every single time. Because yeah. Oh, for sure. My intention of what I was trying to do to get the hitter out was different. Yeah. Right. I mean, my, my, during my, my college career, look me up. I've sucked. Uh, no problems with that. I've accepted that at this point, but, uh, my college career, my, what I realized when I, it took me five years to figure this out. My intent sucked on the mound, not intent, like a 10 out of 10. It's like, no, like, what am I trying to do with this? Your pitch? Intention. Yeah, that's a yeah. good differential to know is what is the difference between your intensity or RPA or whatever, and then your intention, which yeah. is like, hey, I'm trying to bury this pitch, or I'm trying to blow by this guy, or hey, I'm just trying to get it over the plate. Those are two totally yeah, different. For, well, for the longest time, it was always just like, oh, my God, I hope it's a strike. And then it took me a while to be like, that's an intention. Like, yo, like, like, maybe, maybe like, aim for something like have a specific target and like understand your intended zone versus your actualized zone, like your executed zone, understand how, like where your misses are. Like my whole life I was missing up and away to righties and it took, and I don't know how anybody just didn't go, Hey, instead of aiming down the middle, just have the catcher set up low and into a righty. So maybe when you miss, it still goes over the plate or like no one ever did that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but it's stuff like that that you have to know as a player too. Like coaches can't figure that out for you, which is sad to say at times. And I think even Chris Lang has been doing some interesting stuff with that that sort of thing. I'd be interested to hear about that. Um, Well, even I think from my perspective now, like I didn't know this back whenever we knew uh, each other, but like I wouldn't have said a word, but had someone go put a helmet on or something at least and go stand in to the right-handed batter's box or like stand right there. Yeah. I, didn't, I didn't worry, but I just used a constraint to afford a certain 
behavior, which is not throwing it arm side high to a righty. Hey, don't hit that. What that's the affordance. We're going into motor motor learning systems here now. That's fine. Um, it's inviting for people who don't know what affordance is. Is it's inviting an action. Yeah, it's something that invites an action. Exactly. So it's like, all right, I put in a right hand hitter, which invites you to right. Depending on your mindset, it's like, okay, hey, I need to change this and you know, my behavior to accomplish the goal is to throw it over the plate. There's also a psychological component, what you were talking about, right? Ecological approach is like, okay, hey, I don't need to hit this guy. But your brain hit this guy. Doesn't really register don't all the time, (laughs) right? So it's like, okay, that's a whole nother rabbit hole we'll deter away from. But you add that in without saying a damn word, maybe that helps influence that behavior pattern. Well, also, too, people are so poor at blending bullpens in actual game scenarios. Facts. Like, I mean, Baseball people, yeah, I yeah. Agree. Right. practice practice is so far away from games. And so people need to be better at blending the two constraints, especially, I mean, people ragged on. They need to be better at practice design. Yes, yeah, 100%. I mean, people ragged on, uh, like, weekend starters going into games for instead of doing their midweek bullpen. I'm kind of just like, well, why, why not? Like, I mean, as long as the pitch count's not freaking ridiculous and they throw an inning, like, why can't they? I mean, maybe it's a little higher RPE or something, but I mean, just sure. cut back well, weight room volume. It's not going to be super high stress. They're probably going to put them in when they're up by five runs or whatever. So then, they're yeah, like, cool. I'm just here, get my work in. It's going to be a lot more realistic than just throwing off to the side to a, a catcher at whatever I got that day intensity wise, but there's no emotion. There's no balls and balls and strikes being called. There's no hitters in the box, right? Like add as many variables as you want. I mean, if you suck at throwing strikes, it's hard to replicate that. Yeah. And if you suck at throwing strikes in game, like me, I can fill up the zone in the bullpen. Can't do it in a game. You need to throw in a game more. Like it's that easy or find out. So like, yeah, maybe, or maybe the game's too much for you. At, at, at this and time. then take a step away without it being in between just a bullpen and a game. There needs to be – like people do the same thing with pitch design already. People yeah. do execution pens where they start – or they start designing a pitch and they move on to execution pens where it's mixing that pitch with other pitches. And then they throw with a hitter in and they're still doing the same thing. It's all scripted. And then you go to lives and then you go to real games. But for some reason, people don't do that in any other facet of, yeah. of pitching. Yeah. It's crazy to think about, but hey, like sometimes it's just that simple. Never know. But yeah, I would say myself personally, like I've definitely zoomed out a lot and kind of been like, okay, I need to have more representation of the game in my practice design or my training design, whatever you want to call it. Because at the end of the day, Trying to get the athlete better, looking for a specific adaptation, which is probably the biggest thing I got out of studying Caldeed stuff is like, all right, what adapta- what adaptation are you looking for? And that's literally it. Is that's what kind of guides your your program or your practice design. Yeah. I mean, I used to I used to be more along the lines of like everything must transfer. I guess every adaptation that I have must transfer. Then I read, then I read Joel Jameson's 
there's far transfer and then there's near transfer though too. Yeah. I mean, then I read Joel, Joel Jameson's book where he's like running a mile. I forget how he says it, but like running two miles by itself won't transfer, but increasing aerobic capacity will always transfer. And like, he wasn't saying that people should go out and run miles, obviously, but you can always like, you can always use increased aerobic capacity and it doesn't really the extra matter what exercise got you there. I mean, at the end of the day, like it matters the adaptation. Yeah. The adaptation is what matters. Okay. So with with that, I really love that. What repeat that one more time where you were saying like aerobic capacity is being increased increased aerobic capacity will always transfer to sport. Running two miles will not. The adaptation is what transfers, it's not the exercise. Yeah. So the capacity. So when we're training guys. Are we just trying to improve the capacity of movement and problem solving or is it? Both. Yeah, sure. Both. Yeah. Both. So uh, I have begun to categorize my days into output days and movement capacity days, I guess you would call it. Uh, and then output. they also fit. In. Okay. Yeah. Is and that so my output... also regulated with central nervous system or? Yep. I was, yep. I use a high low system as well. So I use Charlie Francis's system. I literally posted about this on Twitter last week. I've been blown up on Twitter. I don't know why, but, um, uh, but I, I blend, I blend a high low, high low system. So high low CNS, high low system is basically you have high days and you have low days. High days are taxing into the CNS, low days are not. And so all my high day stuff is output based. So anything that taxes the CNS, it can be speed. It can be strength. It can be power, whatever you want it to be, those end up on one day. And so the, my weekly schedule goes low day Monday or medium day. Some people like to go medium before a high day, medium, low, medium, low slash, and then high on Tuesday. So medium, low Monday, high Tuesday, low Wednesday, medium Thursday, low Friday, high Saturday, off Sunday. And a lot of people like to take the day off the first day after throwing instead of that that's Sunday. So they go Wednesday off instead of, instead of Sunday off. That's fine too. I don't really care to be honest. Like all I care is just the weekly workload. That's, that's all I care. How you divide it up. That's up to you, but I'd recommend like only one neurologically super taxing day per week, which is speed for me. I don't think strength is that neurologically taxing personally. I mean, I'm a big, strong guy. I train strength a lot. My athletes who train strength a lot. Don't sure. really get taxed after a lot of strength work because it makes sense. They've adapted to implied demands or they've adapted to specific demands. Sorry. And so yeah. they've, and so, I mean, that's just what I do right now. And so the high days are all output like leg press. I freaking love leg press, tries output on the legs, leg press, and then uppers, bench press, normally overhead press, stuff like that, which, you know, the conventional strength stuff paired with like running and then upper body speed work uh, typically. And then low days are where I challenge my athletes to become better athletes. I think that's where actually like 90% of my work gets done. Yeah. I would have, I would now, because I always use athletes too, but I've shifted my thinking to be more problem solvers, more efficient problem solving. So, but this is where I'm having a tug of war with that, um, high low CNS. If a guy's never done it before, 
and I'm telling him to solve a problem that he hasn't done, that's pretty taxing. Maybe not. It could be peripheral and central. I don't know. But yeah, I mean, that's why, I mean, I like having them in on the low days. Like not every exercise is new, obviously. I mean, I guess for new athletes it is, and maybe that should be accounted for in the first couple weeks of the program. But uh, well, you're going back to that neurological gain within the first what? What's the study say? The first six weeks? Yes, four to six weeks. Four to six weeks. Yeah, newbie gains. Those are big, big for the social media clout. Let me tell you. Uh, but but what? But what you get is you get an athlete. Like if you throw in one or two new exercises on low days, like it's not like. It's not like I'm telling them to do like something crazy. It's like, no, like the Turkish getup. I'm, I used to hate on Turkish getups and I still think I do, but like it's something that like is a total body movement exercise. It's helping the athlete move after a high CNS day. Like, I mean, a little bit of shoulder ISO never hurt anybody. And so on, I'm not driving output on my shoulder. Like that's what low days are for. And so I want them to move and recover on these days and challenge them a little bit with something they've never done. If they suck at it, well, guess what? All my guys are super competitive and love getting better. So they're going to work at it. And I want to mix that in with the same good old, good old stretches and stuff that we do. No, we don't really do a lot of stretches, but like we do some weighted stretches sometimes and, you know, just stuff to get them moving around on the low days. But I want to keep them interested in the circuits. Sure. You want to help them be a better mover. So you're giving them certain things, whether it's with weights or whatever type of means you want. Could be DNS, could be FRC, could be whatever, right? Like could have some of that sprinkled in if it makes sense for the athlete, depending on where their challenge point is, right? Like, okay, this guy, I don't know. What's something that is a quality that's kind of probably reoccurring with some of the guys you train? Uh, low back soreness, low back tightness after after throwing. Okay. Skip ahead the next 60 seconds if you don't want to find out about a company I co-founded, Ink Sports Performance. So here's the scoop. At Ink Sports Performance, we get it. We were athletes ourselves, former college and professional pitchers. We were also perform- former college coaches as well. Rob and I, we don't do one size fits all programs. We custom craft each training and throwing program and offer that one-on-one coaching support that you need where you're not just a number. We're all about that personal touch. We'll dive into your training videos, whip up some of the program designed to take you to your next level. Nothing cookie cutter here. So if you, one of your friends, or maybe a player that you know is serious about competing at the next level, Hit us up on our website, give us a call, get that set up at inksportsperformance.com. And also, just a heads up, we're also very selective who we take, right? We only take a handful of dedicated athletes, and if you're not putting in the work, we'll have to say goodbye. So let's ink you in to the next level. Nice. All right. Yeah, let's go down that rubble. So they have low back soreness. Is it from like plyometrics or is it from when they're pitching? Is it mostly on their front leg and then just constant repetitive 
slamming into the ground and then they just lack the force acceptance. Yeah, we've been, well, no, we've, we've been working on this. It's been getting better, thankfully, but for some reason I got an influx of guys who threw pretty hard and when they threw, they got low back tightness on the lead leg side. And I mean, I, I, I went, Oh, you know, pretty, pretty easy problem with some pretty easy solutions. And it goes, well, in my mind, it went inability, like pelvis is not internally rotating efficiently around the lead leg. And so it's slamming up against the femur. That's what I was thinking. Internally or externally? Uh, It was not internally rotating around the front leg. That's what I was thinking. Okay. So I'm here. Well, I guess I, I guess the femur was internally rotating. The pelvis was externally rotating. Okay, cool. But sorry, sorry, bad distinction. I'm sure we're on the same. Yeah, no, no, no. I can understand how people would be confused. That's why I said bad distinction. Okay. So femur is internally rotating, pelvis externally rotating. My mistake. But so the low back was just being slammed over and over again because they had it. They didn't have enough range of motion to like slow down or decel. And so I was just. Uh, my big thing is create movement capacity to in to so they can harness like you know like the movement qualities that they practice in practice they can take that on the mound instead of like working with them on the mound on their problems like I give them different movement solutions off the mound hopefully they increase you know their coordination pattern on the mound I think that transfers more than cueing personally but I was like I was like damn like what do I do with all these guys like I I deal with six athletes i was like six or seven i forget the count all of them get low back tightness and honestly myself included sometimes and so i was like okay i need to brainstorm some ways and what we did was all we did was like the uh cory schlesinger uh like the uh kettlebell like the kettlebell swings not i know that sounds bad but it was like rhythmic rhythmic kettlebell swings where he's like switching stances and stuff like that and catching the kettlebell but i was like i was constraining them so all the catches where I was putting them in mid stance. And so I was constraining them where it was the only part of gate that was internally rotation biased. And so I was just having us having all my athletes try to catch these kettlebells in mid stance and become better at repetitively accepting force in internal rotation. And it got mostly better. And then I still have like one or two athletes to struggle, but I'm still brainstorming. So that's that's what I did with that. We're not PTs or chiros, like we can't go and like actually physically manipulate that. But like within the means of what we can do as a, I'm going to say movement specialist, right? Then, yeah, that makes sense. Um, I myself dealt with this too, but I think whenever I was trying to fix it, I was focused too much on the side of pain of right low back tightness because i'm a lefty yeah and so i was actually talking with my dad because he's a chiropractor so then it's like okay cool this dynamic here but so think right l5 but what's actually pulling that as a left-handed thrower my sacrum is being rotated also to the right from constant repetitive motion of throwing a lot also consecrity like certain um, muscles and things like that are shifting my sacrum which in turn shifts everything else right so like that's where you can kind of get into the whole pri rabbit hole where this is like 
Right. Yeah. I see. Whatever. Cool. Oh, but, you mean we're not going to talk about mutation, counter mutation of the sacrum? Yeah, sure. Want to lead on? I don't want to talk about that. No. Yeah. Oh I mean, again, it's. Yeah. Uh, I feel like you need to know it, but not. Yeah. You can't. You can't have things or even any means, not just PRI or whatever. You can't let that be your your driving force or your your loud speaker so to speak right the, yeah, the if you voice of what directs your training i think you if need, all you have is a hammer everything looks like a nail like sure you i think you use one thing there. to solve all the problems oh 100 yeah. i think it needs to be there you need to have that information like oh hey this is what's going on like, okay cool <laughs> if they're having pain then yeah like cool we might need to regress to that but at some point i got to get them up on their feet and actually dynamically move around versus just having them do breathing drills on the ground well i use i use that sort of information not as like drill wise if if that makes sense as to like understand why people move the way that they move like i like i use wide and narrow isa like not not that i would ever tell my athletes if they're wide or narrow like some of my college buddies ask because they it's like a joke. They're just like, am I wide or narrow? And I just go, oh, you're narrow. Like, I just know. Like, we don't need to assess. Like, I can just – I've played with you for three years. Like, I know. So uh, we use that information more as like a – like to understand why guys do certain things. And so if like guys are narrow, it's not like I'm going to go like, hey, we should like breathe on the ground. Like, you know, do this stuff. It's like, no, like you're a narrow. Like, maybe I shouldn't tell you like, hey, I know you hate heavy deadlifting we're going to heavy deadlift you like, no, like he hates heavy deadlifting because he's an arrow. Let's just squat him instead. Like it's not, that's, that's how I use that information. And like, I've been reading, uh, Devin Hayes put me on this train of thought, but he's been posting a lot about like the, the rotational differences between lefties and righties. Um, and off of like the, where their organs are. Yeah. Yep. I like, I think that that's a pretty freaking money idea. Um, it makes sense to me. So, and I mean, he's gotten guys throwing harder just from rotating more as lefties. And I, I like to hit bombs off the tee as a lefty and I throw harder after. So, I mean, teach his own, but I think that's a So, yeah, I mean, I get it. Um, I would zoom out a little bit more. Majority of baseball. Yeah, this is really zooming out. Like we're looking like globe outside of just the individual. Yeah. Um. Majority of baseball and especially a majority of our lives has been in the northern hemisphere. And I'll just let that kind of resonate for a little bit. Yeah. No, I, I like that thought. So that's super zooming out. All right. Now I'll get back a little bit more closer to the organism. All right. Cool. Lefties live in a, with me being left handed, lefties live in a right handed world. So we're constantly having to compensate and do things differently. Yeah, I mean, whether or not you necessarily agree that it's like left-handed or whatever, like I physically have to drive a car with my right leg, which is causing me to do something that I'm not normally feeding into a pattern with. So does that make me more adaptable and adjustable? Because I'm having to do something that's not necessarily my common pattern. Maybe, but is the pattern already so ingrained? Like, 
I mean, but it's it's a new skill for righties, anyways. Driving. Do you think that the that the side that you're doing it matters that much? I don't know. We're super dumbing over here, but I, I like it. Is this these type of questions end up either helping us figure out like, all right, yeah, this definitely doesn't work, or hey, there might be something here. But it's good to do this. I don't. I don't try to do it, go down these rabbit holes myself because then that's where you get super domed. In my opinion, I think just like in coaching, like you need to have a person to talk with and like actually interact, have a oh, relationship with. Right. I'm proud that I haven't been in the superdome as a coach or an athlete. And like, I mean, I guess I'm always in the superdome as a coach. I'm just reading books because i like reading books yeah like it's not it's not like a big deal but i mean a lot like at the very core of neurology high level athletes their nervous system functions like a reflex so like the high high intensity rapid movement at the spot information flows from the brain to the spinal cord out to the limbs reflexes it just goes from spinal cord out to the limbs so when people are throwing, uh, their athletic movements happen, spinal cord to limbs. They don't think. So, I mean, even Bruce Lee wrote about it in one of his books. I mean, thinking inhibits athletic movement always. And yeah. so, I mean, you don't want to think. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so I mean, I, I I very rarely give cues anymore. And I'm so proud of myself uh, when, when guys are throwing, at least. I mean, I cue them up in the weight room because they don't care about the weight room. They care about throwing. So that's why, I mean, set constraints, let them learn, let them problem solve. Yeah. You want to let them problem solve. Um, However, okay. Let um, let me give you an example. Let's say you were talking about, and you're doing more research on the front leg or the front knee extending, which is also kind of influenced more so from like how the pelvis is rotating, but front leg. Right. A guy's landing and he's, you know, having a little bit more of a flexed front knee and you're just like, hey, rotate faster, rotate faster. And your intention's there, but that's not really changing. But maybe seldomly, like, right, I'm I'm with you. Like, don't you like baseball industry is definitely heavy on verbal cues or it has been for a long time in general. Maybe after doing all this other stuff, if you already know that that's what you want to change, if you just kind of like, hey, just straighten out your front leg or instead of telling them to explicitly do it, hey, show me how you can produce force with a straighter leg. So you're not giving them exactly what positions are like um, an, an exact model of how they're supposed to look like. You're still letting them be authentic through the movement. But it's like a little bit more of a nudge to kind of accelerate that process. Yeah. Uh, like I saw you post about like being more, show me how powerful you can be with the lower half. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I definitely think stuff like that's external cues, pretty money, because uh, then guys don't think nearly as much internally. Uh, but I, I, with the front, anything with the front leg, I like to put guys like anything with the front knee, like leg buckling or anything like that. I, I put them up, put their front leg on something soft. So that way it accentuates the problem instead of, instead of, uh, 
instead of helping them, it actually hurts them. And so they auto overcorrect into the direction that I want. Yep. Um, or I actually tell them to uh, bend their front leg more. I actually, I, I always try to ruin them more so they fix themselves. You're feeding the flaw. Yeah. Okay. I mean, that's, that's what I like to do personally. Um, I, for instance, I mean, another example is like glove arms. Like I, a lot of guys stay long with the glove arms. So I have their, my only cue is keep your arms straight the whole time and don't bend it. And what do you know? It, they learn that it sucks and it, they want to get it short pretty quick after. Like it can be long at the front. Don't get me wrong. Like long at the front, but you need to rotate around a fixed point. Can't do that with a long glove arm. Well, you can just very inefficiently. Sure. Yeah. You know, and uh, I think a lot of this, sometimes people can get lost down the rabbit hole. Like, okay, hey, cues or no cues, external, internal. It really boils down to what your relationship is like with that athlete. Yeah. Because if I'm going to tell you, hey, your front leg sucks without saying that, or maybe I do say that. Yeah. I think good and great coaches tell the truth a lot faster. And let me explain by that a little bit more. They may not like be an asshole and like strictly say like, Hey, like you suck for, you know, that's not a good choice. of yeah. Hey, we can improve this. May or may not give you the exact roadmap of what that looks like. Or maybe they don't even tell you at all by their words. They're just like, they're starting to give you problems to solve in order to be more efficient, be more, I don't know where I'm kind of going with that. But like, if we keep ignoring something, then that's where it becomes a bigger problem. So for example, your guys with back pain, if you're just like, oh, it's fine, it's just from your body it just needs to adapt but it's constantly having inflammation 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 oh now we have a like herniated disc or whatever right yeah. because you, Any, weren't listening, you weren't listening to the signal anything that my athlete comes to me with like hey we need to address this or hey this is why i think i'm not throwing hard i immediately address it because if they think it's a big issue it will be a big issue like placebo whatever you sure. think it's not a problem like yeah. it will be limiting them. I mean, I, and that's why like my first, my first question, well, I know that this is, might be a hot take in all of my athletes is what do you want to do? Like, what do you want our training to look like? What do you know? 90% of the training is what, what they want it to look like. You know, I give them arm farm, freaking why not look big, look nice in shirts. Yeah, helps, your, code helps them. your code yeah. is the training plan with them, which I love because they're going to take some ownership in that too. Yeah, they take ownership. They love doing it. And I mean, first step is compliance to any program. Like if they're not doing a program, they're not getting better. So, I mean, and, but I also think that they know, uh, especially my higher level athletes, um, my, my they know what they need to do to get better. Like they know better than me. They're in their bodies all the time, what they're doing, what they're feeling. They know like, holy crap. Like, I mean, I've thrown a pitch before and like my left hip cramps after. Like if you would ask me, like, Clayton, why don't you throw 95? I'll tell you, well, I got a bum shoulder and my hips suck. And that would be the two, 
that'd be two, two things that you should probably program for because I know, I mean, obviously with like 12 year old kids, have them do whatever. I mean, newsflash, they'll get better. They're getting bigger. As long as you don't like run them into a wall all day, they'll be fine. But they know internally what they need. And that's why, I mean, I, I more cater to what they want and I'm an outlet for their intrinsic desires and their innate intelligence within them. And that's why I think I get good results with my, all my pro guys. Like they know, and I give them what they want. And instead I don't go, no, you're wrong. Like, no, like we're, we're going to work on this together and we're going to have an output that we both want and are proud of. Sure. Yeah. Well, and you, you definitely hit the nail on the head where it's like, okay, cool. Pro guys know how to adapt and they know their bodies really well. We're just, I'm just being kind of like a sounding board to make sure that like this isn't going down the wrong path. You're just shining a light to be like, Hey, something over here might work. It may not be this exact road, but like there's a fork in the road. You pick which one, but like there's six other forks over here. Don't go down there. Yeah. I mean, sometimes my athletes will come to me with a video like, Hey, can we try this? I'm like, nah, dude, this is pretty stupid. And then I'm like, here's why. Like, here's why we're doing what we're doing right now. Here's why we probably shouldn't do what we're doing. If you come back and you're like, hey, I looked into it some more. Here's six other reasons why we should be doing this. And then if I don't have any answers, like, I will think about it. Like, at the very least, sure. like, I, you will get a legitimate, like, I, I've I've taken that, that back road before. Like, uh, I don't know, like, some, where, I'm, where I've been going lately, I mean, once again, like, Turkish get-ups. Like, uh, the first time stuff like that was brought to me was by an athlete. They were like, hey, like, I want to do some more of this. Like, I think the shoulder health aspect's really good. And then I fought back. I was like, nah, not really, not shoulder health, you know, whatever. And then I started looking into it more. I started following a lot of, like, old school uh, strongman guys, which is where I, my training is going in the future. Like, I'm going more towards that stuff, uh, especially lately. But I started following those guys, and I was like, well, damn, like, you know, like, uh, there's some merits here, you know. I can't ignore the fact that, you know, uh I, I define athleticism as the ability to create output against any stimulus, maximal output against any stimulus, new or foreign, whatever. You, If you can produce more force in a weird position than somebody else, you're going to win. So, And the name of the game is putting force into the ball in super weird positions in baseball, so I don't know why that wouldn't work. But uh, my athlete was like, hey, I still think we should do this. And I was like, you know what, fine. And, you know, it went great. And I kept doing them and throwing them in everyone's program. So. Sure. I like that. Definitely. I definitely see where you're coming from too. Now, whenever you, you were saying like, Hey, you're producing force in the ground a certain way. Do you think a guy might just be surviving that? I would say position. Um, what, what word do I want to use? Do you think he's just surviving to to solve that movement problem based on what training he's been exposed to, or is he able to adapt? Uh, always able to adapt. I I think that we can adapt to anything, and so I mean, you're, I mean, it's like people are like a like a beautiful canvas. You've been painted on by so many different experiences in your life, training, whatever, and that's why you are. You are currently trying to solve a movement pattern with your available options that your body deems to be safe. And when you run out of safe options, you're going to do something that 
might not end super good or might end great. You know, we're not we're not able to predict injury. Uh, it might go fine the first hundred times, two hundred times, whatever. And then the the five hundredth time, that's the time you know your elbow goes out or you know maybe your shoulder or something like that. But if you introduce like novel stimulus over and over again, and you give guys more movement solutions that they can use to solve other problems, the body will figure out different avenues that safe movement occurs in. I mean, you're just destabilizing movement attractor patterns that already exist, changing them, and you can change your movement attractor patterns by giving. So if you give someone a new screwdriver that fits in a different screw, they're going to stop using the one screwdriver that they have for everything. And now it's two screwdrivers and it changes how you do everything. Now you can screw in two different types of screws. Then you got a third screwdriver. And then look, now you've got three screwdrivers, but there becomes a point where you're using one screwdriver for everything. That's probably not good. And so we should introduce more novel stimulus and more ways of doing things. So that way you feel safe all the time. If that, if that analogy makes sense. Yeah. And so I definitely think that instead of surviving, you know, we can learn to thrive or we can learn to potentially accept force in certain positions or produce force in certain positions that the body deems unsafe. We can teach it to be safe as well. Especially, I mean, depth drops, that's like the whole yeah, premise. I mean, like, yeah, there's, there's definitely a safe or safety or maybe good versus bad. But yeah, I don't know. I feel like because it's so different for each guy that the only thing to really objectively measure that realistically is like, all right, cool. Did you accomplish the task without pain or Hey, the, a bad one would be, you didn't accomplish the task or you accomplished the task with pain. Then that, you know, or, or maybe there's like a, an improper way of doing it. Like, so circling back to the very beginning is like the sequencing of everything's like, all right, your output of hard velo and getting the guy out wasn't there. So that's probably not a good attraction. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, that's the problem with motor learning. You can't, how do you know if you're getting better? You don't really know. Like, sure. like, I mean, I, I think that the only thing, can you do more stuff now than you used to be able to? That's kind of the only one I can think of. Like, can you do the handstand that you were trying to do? Yeah. I mean, you could say like, okay, yeah. Like, do I have differential learning in my practice plan where I'm throwing different, you know, balls or I'm having to throw off of different surfaces, different environments to learn how to adapt? Yeah, sure. I think there's validity to kind of sprinkling that in. And I had a podcast on that. Um, or actually it's coming up, but it should be out by the time this episode is released. Um, but it's it's like, okay, are we too focused on the implement and not actually having them solve problems with more layers? You get what I'm saying? Yeah. So instead of like worrying so much about the ball, it's like, no, like let's worry about having a batter's batter in the batter's box when they're throwing. Instead of stuff like instead of stuff like throwing a football all the time, sure, yeah, yeah, I agree. Now, so so with that, so you have differential learning. You have a guy who is already good at getting guys out, and maybe messing with his attractor state by giving him differential learning 
makes him worse. Yeah. I mean, but then you screw guys up. Yeah. Then on the flip side is like, okay, you have this guy who doesn't have very much feel, but that differential learning amplifies the adjustability that he needs. Yeah. I mean, yeah. When guys do that though, I feel like that's people just don't stick it out long enough with, with the guys that are bad at it. And I mean, I've seen enough scientific research at this point to pretty much believe that, you know, you should probably be doing differential learning if you suck at throwing strikes. Like there's enough cross sport research on it now where I'm like, like, yeah, like this is, this is kind of a big deal. People, people are hitting freaking hitting soccer balls with golf clubs and they're getting better at their short game. Like it's, it's a, it's a thing. And so, uh, People should be like, if you suck at throwing strikes, like you should try to throw different weighted balls for strikes and you should be able to do it at random. Like it's a skill and you should like, eventually you might be able to figure it out. Hopefully if, if you keep at it and that's, I think just people become frustrated and give up, which is maybe rightly so, because if you really, really suck at something, like you're not going to want to keep doing it and you're not going to be invested in it at all. Sure. So I, I guess there is that flip side to play my own devil's advocate. Yeah. I mean, and that's where I'm at is like, okay, you can't just throw someone into the fire, like right into a game and expect them to figure things out. Oh, absolutely not. This is something that you do for months and months in the off season. Like you don't, yeah. you don't give guys and, uh, stuff like that when they're competing. Yeah. You got to find a challenge point that is still a, like you have some points of success but you're not also like 10 out of 10 hitting that marker each time. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, that's why I don't give, like I, I challenge my pro guys with a lot of different stuff than I challenge my high school kids with. Like it's not even close, like properly time stimulus. I talked about this on one of my blogs. Like you can't go around wasting like the best stimulus for a kid that throws 75. Like when he throws 90, he's going to need it. Like he doesn't need it now. Like he'll need it later, like when it when it matters and when and maybe you know you shouldn't waste your peaking stuff when you know like your cal these peaking stuff like really powerful stimulus when properly timed, like you know little Johnny he throws he throws eighty two like dude get that just get that guy maybe you know back squatting a little bit until it stops working, like that's where I think everybody screws up. It's like not no like conventional stuff like still has merits for sure. Yeah. I mean there's ADU, there's something to be said yeah. yeah. 82, 82 to like 90 is uh, consistency in a Chipotle bowl. Yep, one hundred percent. And then and then beyond ninety is where it does get tricky. Like you need to you need to have the right stuff. Like this lady hit me up and she was like, "Hey, my son's thirteen. Like I think he should train with you." And I'm like, "No, like have that go kid go play with his friends and go train with his friends." And then she goes like, "Okay, he'll train with the wrestling team." And I'm like, "You know that might not be optimal, but like I'm sure he'll have a better time doing that." and getting better with his buddies than he will doing my workouts that I write that are probably close to the same. I'd imagine for him, he's 13 and throws 73. What am I going to do? Well, I mean, he's probably young enough to be like, okay, anything's going to give him some novice gains. Like what we talked about before. Yeah. Now I don't, I don't want to waste this lady's money either. Sure. So let's get into that a little bit. You don't want to waste her money. What makes you think that that would be wasting your money 
maybe you... I think that that kid would get better doing anything. And I, I mean, I, I charge pennies on the dollar for my service, in my opinion. And I give my advice to people for free all the time. And my honest advice to that lady was don't sign up with me yet. Wait until he's 16. Wait oh, until 16. he throws 80. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah. It's not like I, you're completely like discrediting, like, you should no, 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 no. I was like, I was like, I, I said to myself, like, hey, like, it wouldn't be right for me to tell this lady that her kid needs to train with me. Like, no, like this kid just needs to learn what a, what a bench press is. Like I could teach him that for a hundred bucks, or he could go to anytime fitness with his buddies, watch a couple of YouTube videos and eat a Chipotle burrito for the next two years and get just as good. Probably maybe not in throwing wise, but you'll do that in the weight room wise. Yeah. And yeah, then I mean, he was referred to me by uh, the coach. So yeah, you hired a generic PT or I say PT personal trainer who, you know, can at least show them the basics. Then like, all right, cool. You have a foundation to work with now. Now we yeah. can pump the gas. Okay. I see where you're coming from. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I've, stuff I say to myself, I don't say to others. Otherwise I'd be, I would have no, no money because I, half the time guys come to work with me and I'm like, yeah, like how did people not see this before? Like you should be able to solve this problem on your own. And then, but sometimes people need guides and stuff like that who can see it. You need a mentor, man. So like, Think of yourself back when you were 13, like what would have probably been the most effective thing for you to do? A slap in the face and then told to go, go squat some more. A little Vila slap. That's funny. Yeah. Just a little bit. It's like, all right. Like I think it's us as coaches, like we're valuable and almost more of mentors up until a point where like, you know, in a literal sense, your guys you have pro guys you are coaching the pro guys because you're kind of alongside them with the journey a mentor is hey come up here what i've already done which is what you would do to a 13 year old yeah you get yeah, and and i'm really hesitant to take remote clients who are that young because i mean i think that the well i think the they probably mentor need- coach relationship like the mentor athlete relationship like is really important and you do need like a good male role model in your life. Who's actually there, especially, you know, some of these kids don't have dads around. Sure. So, so yeah, I, I would agree with that too. Um, and they probably need a little bit more tactile hands-on, like, you know, demonstration, like they're not going to be able to pick up things mm-hmm. as quickly. Like their learning curves are a little bit larger for certain exercises. For example, the post that I put out for my younger guys that I'm working with right now, the bear crawls. We spent a lot of time on like just learning how to do that, but I thought it was important because it was just general locomotion. So they had to literally couldn't hold themselves up yet. So we started with a isometric hold there. Okay, cool. Now you know what that feels like. Now it starts to take some steps. Right. Our left leg, right hand, boom, left hand, right leg. Boom. But they didn't even pick it up off the ground yet. They're just literally getting this pattern down. Right. So like you're teaching them that. Then it's like, all right, cool. Now we're going to do it sideways. And you don't see a damn thing. The constraint is you have to go sideways. Or backwards. Right. And I don't specifically coach them, but I'm also there watching, making sure that they don't injure themselves. Yeah. So I think I mean, there's, there's value in it. For sure. And those kids don't want to have it all 
somebody figure it out for him too. I mean, chances yeah, yeah, are they're a, all dudes. That's a dictator coach approach versus yeah. what you were saying before was I'm a co-designer. I want to do and like ask what you like, ask what you want versus saying it's my way or the highway. This is all that what we have. I think it there's there probably it might could still be some non-negotiables for some guys, but you also need to have some autonomy there. Maybe that autonomy is earned. Maybe it's depending upon the training age. Yeah. And that's the, that's the art of coaching. I don't know. I mean, when I was 16 and I was doing stuff, like I didn't want my coach to always tell me what to do because I wanted to figure it out. So I think it's good that you're not always coaching them up. Anyways, I mean, problem solving, whatever, never always coach up your athletes, but I mean, just my experience. Yeah. I like it. I like it. Cool. I was a little degenerate, so. <laughs> hey, well, it's funny enough, like the person who we were is probably the person that we're most equipped to help. Oh, yeah. Because we have a lot I mean, that's of why, that, relatability to that. More empathy. That's why, I'm, that's why I'm always posting about not not saying you want optimal training in my like i always wanted the optimal training like no bro like you 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 top 90 on your best day like no like look at your velo gains over the last year just stay doing what you're doing like it like i i got so mad that i didn't that like my last live outing i did healthy in my career i sat 90 sat 90 and i got so like over the next three months, I changed up my training entirely. And a year before that, I was topping 77. And I have no idea why I did that. To this day, like that is the biggest regret of my career that I didn't just stick with what I was doing. Mm-hmm. Like I, it took me, took me six months to go from 77 to 88. And it took me another six months to go from 88 to 90. And then I got pissed. Like, yeah, that's how it works. So. So that's why, and then I, then I did a bunch of crazy stuff that might've helped. Yeah. I mean, like I'm playing devil's advocate here. Is that how it works though? Like, could there have been maybe a little bit of shortening of that learning curve some? Yeah, I'm, I, I do think so. But at the same time, like I'm a big now proponent of do it till it doesn't work. Like it it still worked. You got to put in the work. It's not going to come overnight by any means. Yeah. No, no, no. Yeah. I, I just think that I I jumped shit too early and I'm a program hopper and I just needed to someone to tell me like, hey, like look at what you've done. It's so awesome. Like great job. Like don't don't just abandon it for something else. Like you built you built it. You the people are coming. Like just give them some time. Like you're sitting 90 for the first time in your life. You don't need to change it up and go do something else. Like, no, like Yeah, yeah. yeah. They're here. So I mean that's just my biggest regret. Yeah, you've seen those little graphics on social media, Instagram, whatever, where it's like, okay, I'm doing all this stuff. I'm mining through. There's one guy who stops like right before he gets to the diamonds. Yeah, the diamonds, yeah. Goes all the way and then ends up getting the diamonds. Like you never know when that one more day, one more week, one more whatever is going to get you to that next level that you're trying to reach. Yeah. Yeah. And then I, and then I 
did all this, you know, super advanced training age stuff. And maybe I one to two miles an hour more of juice and then it went kaput. And then I was like, well, damn, I've already done the most advanced stuff. What do I do now? And then I go back to the, to the basic stuff and I start growing slower and slower and then I injure my shoulder. And then what do you know? Yeah. Was that kind of the writing on the wall for you as a player to be like, all right, I injured my shoulder. I've tried all this stuff, like just kind of come to a means to an end or what was your um, realization where it was like, okay, I think I'm just going to coach now. I'm still playing. So I'm, okay. I'm submarine now. I'm submarine. So that's huge. That's cool. No, you're good. Yeah. It's my last year. I'm, I'm, I'm fired up. I love baseball you're, more you're than I ever have in my life. You still be able to play, even though you've had some type of injury, like you're, you're learning to problem solve with a different. Yeah. I was swinging at 86 submarine last year. So, I mean, who knows? I'm throwing a lot slower now. My shoulder hurts so much, but, yeah. uh, but I'm, but I think, I don't know. I, I just, my mental state, I, there was just a lot going on in my life and I was becoming the man I am today, which is really cool to say. I'm still only 22. So, I mean, I think that I just had to, to suffer through getting injured and hating baseball to like find who I am. And I'm a lot different than when we met. Um, we could talk about that if you want. I'm, I'm more than open to talk about who I was not a great person at the time, but that's okay. Um, I mean, if you're willing to be transparent about it, I think there's a great learning uh, lesson out of that for some someone who's listening. Yeah, so I went to Tread when I was 19 years old. And I, at the time, decided to start my own training company while I was at Tread. Um, not a great look, uh, if you're going to do that, I'd probably say. Hey, um, you weren't the first and you are also not the last. I've seen a few sprout up and I had a little bit well, of it too, but go for it. Yeah. I mean, I, hopefully I'm the most successful one just, just to throw that out there. Hey, I admire the passion and you willing to jump out there and do that. I didn't have the balls, yeah. but go for it. Go ahead. Yeah. But that was paired not only with that, it was paired with my personality. Uh, so for those of you listening at home who know me, uh, feel free to skip this part because you already know. But I am six foot five. I'm now 250 pounds. At the time, I was six foot five and probably 220. Uh, but, you know, kind of big guy. Uh, and I love to talk to everybody. I'm pretty friendly. Um, but at the same time, I, um, I like to get angry when I throw, to put it mildly. And because, you know, you know, you get a little anger, a little punch and pizzazz in, in your gut. And, you know, I uh, was uh, kind of a swearing, screaming guy. Not a great look, uh, probably, uh, for people who, if you go to a facility and they don't know who you are. Like, I mean, if you're training with your boys, you know, that's one thing. Like, your boys all know, like, getting hyped up with each other, like, swearing, yelling. Like, you know, like, that's pretty tight if you're all alone. But if you're in a professional environment where you're training with 40 other athletes and they don't all know you and your backstory and, like, where you've come from, not a, not a great idea. That's, uh, uh, that's an environmental thing where it's like, all right, like psychologically you needed to learn how to adapt to the environment that you were in knowing that like, Hey, I know that getting angry gets me to the next level, maybe even in game. 
like a Jonathan Papelbon or, you know, whoever. Uh, Brian Wilson comes to mind, too, or they're just like psychopaths on the mound, right? Yeah. You need to have that persona or like that alter ego. I don't, I'm not discrediting that whatsoever. Um, you know, but if you're in a certain environment and you're, if you're having parents come in or, you know, whatever, sometimes just dialing it back, you can still have it. Not saying to suppress it, but there's a point where you know that you're kind of going over. Yeah. And I was that guy who went over the top. I got no problem admitting that. I, I, I kind of love that about myself. Like I'm, I'm sorry that I did it, tread, and like I shouldn't have. But like at the same time, like I am where I am today because of that guy. So it's like it's a, it's the dichotomy. You can't have, you can't have too little of it, but you can't be the guy that's too much. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I'm glad that I've, I'm glad that I have that dichotomy in my life, because, uh, like that allowed me to do what I am doing today, and I love that. But at the same time, like yeah, it was a professional environment at tread. I mean, it's different when you're with your boys. Like that's that's all that needs to be said. Sure. Yeah. Well, and but, now I think if you come across an athlete or an athlete that you work with has that same type of behavior emerge, you're going to be a lot more better equipped to learn how to handle that or address it than someone who's never had to deal with that before. Yeah. And that's why I resonated with you and I kind of pulled you aside of a few days. I don't even know if I directly said anything to you about that, but I you was did. also that I remember. I was also that guy, but I did it behind closed doors. But I saw that and I recognized. I was like, I know exactly what you're doing right now. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm 19 and I mean a lot of people had problems with me at tread. Uh probably still do. Uh good for them. But Therefore. uh yeah, I mean, I was 19 years old. Uh, some people held it against me, and I think that that was unjustified. But it, but that was completely my fault. I shouldn't have gone in there and acted the way that I should have. And I should have comp- apologized right away, and I did not. And I didn't understand how big of a deal it was. And I should have properly communicated how important uh, like doing those things were to me throwing hard, and I did not. Yeah. If you're ever in this situation, you have to communicate with others. Uh, communication was not my forte at 19 years of age. Sure. And I should have been a lot better with that. And that's that communication. I think coaching does kind of boil down to two things. It's like, Hey, yeah, you need to learn systems, learn the human body. You need to learn how things work, but you also need to have really good people skills and relationships and know how to communicate. A great coach has both of those aspects. Um, Where I was getting at with that is, you know, when, when you're talking about the 13 year old, he probably still has a lot of people skills that he needs to develop before he can work with you at a remote level or an in-person level or whatever. Otherwise it's, um, and that's, I'm assuming one of the reasons why you decide not to work with them. Yeah. I'm, I mean, it's just remote at 13. Like imagine how much growing up you do between 13 and 16. Sure. Like, I mean, a lot of that has to do with, like my coaches played such an important part of my life and I saw them every day and they, you know, sometimes they said not nice things to me because I wasn't being nice and I changed my behavior. And so I can't do that with a kid when they're 13 and they're across the country and Philadelphia and I'm in Sioux Falls or Seattle or wherever. And so, I mean, I want kids to have that relationship and I, 
my mission is to to give back and give what I didn't have, which I hope all coaches do. Sure. Because, you know, that's kind of the point of coaching. And so I wanted that kid to have, you know, the, the best relationships possible and grow into a great young man and whatever. I mean, that's that's kind of the core of what I do and why. Like, I want people to get better and turn into better versions of themselves. Like, being a baseball player is just one aspect of everybody's life. I love that. Yeah. You want to be a, a quality human before you're a quality baseball player. Those can both grow simultaneously, but at the end of the day, baseball is only, I don't even know, for some guys, it's only a quarter of your life, maybe even less. Yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. Send it. Try to get drafted. Sure. Oh, yeah. By all means. Leave no stone unturned. Push the limits. Find out where your where your weaknesses are, and then exploit that. See how good you can actually get. Um, but at the end of the day, like for me, like where I'm at right now, I was like, all right, cool. I've had my experience. I've had this. Now it's less about me and more about the guys that I come in contact with. How do I help make sure that they? Don't make the same mistakes I made. Also, like, grow, stand on the shoulder of giants. Like, hey, you are now on this. Like, I'm going to hand the baton off to you at some point to where you can continue to pioneer this and continue to grow it to where it needs to be. Yeah. I mean, always remember uh, when I was a tread, Tanner Rekalikas said one thing to me, and that's always going to resonate with me. He said, uh, you need to accept your journey as a player is over before you can be a good coach. And I think that that's, that was, I mean, that man's, I may not personally enjoy Tanner Rekalikas, but I think that that guy is one of the smarter guys that I know. And I'm more than willing to say that uh, because I mean, if you followed him on Instagram before or Twitter, before he went to the Bible place that he's working at, I mean, that guy was a hiring God, like that guy, knew so much about organizational structure and hiring. It was ridiculous. And so I think that that was one piece of gold that he dropped on me. And I was just like, that man's right. And that's why I think I'm at a good spot right now. I'm like, my sure. career's over in eight months. Like I'm, I'm enjoying the ride, but like this ain't for me no more. Like I go in, I go into the gym and I read bodybuilding workouts. Like I'm, I, I stay up late at night reading about copper and magnesium and all these other health things because I want my guys to get better. And you know, that's it. I love it. I love it. Yeah. Cool. I definitely think, yeah, if there's any like players who are looking to go into coaching, like definitely make sure that that's coming to a close and also find out why you're doing it. And if you haven't listened to the eco eco, um, eco D episode that's releasing um, before this one, like know your why as a coach. And if your why is to, at some degree, try to make it, quote unquote, that in coaching, because you didn't, quote unquote, make it as a player, you're doing it for the wrong reasons. Okay, well, I'm about to feel like a little bit of an asshole, but I do want to win a ring. Like, I've never won a ring, and I think that that would be sweet. I think there's a competitive aspect. Yeah, all right. That's Yeah. You're vicariously living through the athletes. Just for as sure. much as the helicopter dad would for his son. I feel like for that. Sure. They're, they're 
probably needs to be some emotions and some uh, some closure to be had. Yep, I agree. Yeah. I mean, you have to be selfless and want nothing but the best for your athletes, and you can never hold anything like, damn, this guy throws harder than me, which when I was playing and coaching, like, I kind of did. Being, yeah, being well, that's where, that's where I was, um, you know, as a coach, you're not in the limelight anymore. Nope. No, the players that you're training are trusting their careers to you. Yeah. And you cannot you cannot throw that away. Like that like I I used to think so lightly about a guy wanting to train with me and then when I thought about it and I was like, damn, like this guy makes it. Like it's on me. Like I'm like not in a good way. Like like if he fails, like it's also on me. Like I'm yeah. Like I I need to post more about my athletes' shortcomings in, in all honesty. I need to be like I need to be trans more transparent. Because I feel like people are too quick to put themselves on pedestals. Yeah, maybe a shortcoming and then also like in them overcoming that. Yeah. Versus just lighting it up on the radar gun. I mean, that's sick though. It is. I think there you need you need to tell the whole story, not just part of it. One hundred percent. I mean I know he'll probably listen to this, but my boy Liam Doolin, I uh, when he sent me his video playing for Team Australia, I cried. I cried in my room. Really cool to see that you helped play a part in a guy, in a guy's success. Well, yeah, he's one of my best friends. I cried like a freaking baby in my room when he sent that to me at like four in the morning. Cried like a baby. I love it. Yeah. Hey, plenty more of those where it came from. You'll, as a coach, develop a whole lot of relationships. Oh yeah. I mean, that's part of, that's one of the best parts. I mean, I know people just from posting on the internet, like I know people who I'd never thought I would know before. Yeah. And so many people have found my page and been like, Hey, like this is awesome. Some people have been like, Hey, this is not so awesome as we have seen, but it's connected me with some really great people and I wouldn't change it. Like I'm, I wouldn't know you if I didn't want to know more about baseball. I wouldn't know my friends half as well as I should. If I didn't know about baseball, like, it's a it's a great great place to be and i mean the people that find your page and like if you're posting quality information like a dak said it one time on his story and i totally agree like he said uh i'm never going to market myself uh people are going to come find me if they want to find me and that's how my athletes will sign up i got i don't make it easy for athletes to sign up with me they I, sometimes i post like hey if you want to train with me i got a couple open spots like and i throw a link up that's there's nothing that that on my page is like click here to sign up today or anything like that. Like you have to know. And I think that that's something really value, valued that a lot of people miss as well because you want to get the right person to sign up for your program that aligns with your values. And because people people know a lot today from social media, they know about training and they know what you're offering, why you're offering it. And so if they go, oh, this is what I need, they're going to buy in. Like all my athletes, I can tell them hold a 15 minute ISO lunge and they're all remote, but I know they'll do it. And that's beautiful. I if, think, if that, I mean, 15 minutes is a long time, but. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, Clayton, dude, I appreciate you coming on, man. And uh, for those of you listening, hope you got something out of it. If you did, share it. Or even if you have something where you thought was funny, or maybe even you disagree with it, also share it too. Open to have the conversation. I'm sure Clayton is as well. But dude, disagreements are awesome. Yeah, I think it, we should invite more disagreements and more pushback because that also iron sharpens iron kind of concept, right? Like 
it helps you actually validate a little bit more. Yeah, TCU, I spent the whole summer in Coach Dagan's office, and he told me I was wrong about stuff all summer. So that was that was absolutely electric, and it was one of the best jobs of my life. It was so awesome. I loved being there, and he just told me I was wrong all the time. That's awesome. Cool. All right. Well, for those of you listening, stay in the zone.